and welcome to episode 114 of The Game Pit. I'm Sean and here's Ronan. Hello everyone, you're very welcome back into The Game Pit. Today, Sean, we're going back to the basics, to our bread and butter, and it is a picking over the bones episode. It is, Ronan, it is, and uh, you missed out on the last one, didn't you? It was yourself and Natalie, you found an able replacement, but don't worry, I soon found a shallow grave for her. I'm not getting replaced by anyone. <laughs> no matter, that was my only option. No matter what the public demand. That's right. Bring back Natalie. Bring back Eleanor. No, no, you, you'll be stuck with us. It's fine. Just do with our subpar performances, like everyone else does. I tell you what. The the additional two female members are coming, just like our uh, our father podcast, the Dice Tower. We're referring to them as our father podcast. Are we? well, You're happy with this phrasing. <laughs> I'm going to need a minute here. Can you just fill some time? The senior podcast. <laughs> I don't know which is worse. Okay. Uh, I think you mean that Natalie and Eleanor will probably be on as much as we can feature them. Something like that. Okay. Why would I make a concise point when I can amble on and witter? It's, it's, it's tradition. It is tradition. You've lost me. I've got, oh, and I've got the first game up. You've lost me completely. You should probably do our ND of intro thing and I can try and gather my thoughts. <laughs> okay, well, well Ronan <laughs> tries to work his way around that bombshell. We are, <laughs> we are, of course, proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there. Our father. We are, of course, proud members of the Dice Tower Network. If you wish to go there... And to the Dice Tower itself, a gaming goodness galore. We are on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify, if you wish to download our episodes. And of course, we do have our YouTube channel where we have our pit stop overview videos. So we're going to kick off with our first review of this episode, and this is for Cathargo, a 2017 release for two to four players, taking around 60 minutes, maybe slightly over. This is published by Iron Games, Games Up, and Capstone Games. Designed by Bernd Eisenstein, the designer of Pleponese, Alia Yakta Est, Pax and Panthalos, and helped this time by Ralph Beinert, who doesn't have any other designs as far as I know. In Carthago, each player is a merchant in Carthage, and over three decades are looking to trade with or capture foreign ships, and also to get prestigious places in the local guild and to get achievements, and they only have 15 turns in which to do this. Each player starts with an identical deck of seven action cards, and on each of your turns you're going to choose one of the five different actions in the game. And to do so, you move a dobber on a circular action selection board, but there's no ronda or anything like that, there's no movement points or anything, you just choose one of the five to go to, there's no restrictions in terms of that. So there's five actions are, you can go to the market and trade cards and get trade cards. Now trade cards have got different things on them, they give you a certain type of goods, they give you a certain action they can support and they give you a value in money and they will be used during the other actions in the game. Now why might you want more action cards when you already have a deck of seven which have all the five actions on there? Because I said you're on that circular action selection ring, if you go to a space that has one or more other players dobbers on there, you have to spend supplementary cards adding them to the card you played already in order to take that particular action. 
Now, why do you want goods on these trade cards? That's because you can go and trade with ships, and there's two different ways of doing this. And in fact, there's two separate actions. One of them allows you to put one of your discs, which represents all your, all your actions, basically, into the dock area. There are five slots for different ships to be there. There will be five ships lined up, and you're just reserving one of the berths and saying, I wish to trade there at some point. The second action, which is related to that, is to go to the warship dock. There's only two spaces. There is a possibility in the game to get into a third space. And there you're saying, I am looking to send out a warship. And it's going to be taking a random trader, hopefully, if it's strong enough to do so. Now, why are you going there? There is the fourth action in the game, and that is to trade with those ships. The berth in the dock in which you have your dobber there will be a ship next to it and it will want a particular trade good. And if you have a trade good of that type in your hand, you can hand it in and that's gonna give you some money according to the value of the ship. You turn trade cards over from the top of the deck until you get at least that value money. It's also gonna give you the ship itself, which is going to give you an action in the game. And at any point on one of your turns, you can flip over the ship and they give you all sorts of things which bend the rules in all different sorts of ways and give you a slight edge in which you're trying to do. Now in that trade, as well as doing your dock trade, you can also send out your warship that I was discussing. Now you send it out, and if it's strong enough to attack the random merchant you draw from the top of the deck, and they all have a strength on them on these ships, then you get to take that ship, you get the money as well, but you get to keep it face down, the action's not available to you, or you can flip it by taking a market action. Also, when you send out a warship, you get to place one of your discs into the guild, and that's a key part of the scoring. There are various uh, places within the guild there. It comes in a grid. The number of places available depends upon the number of players, and they all require a certain amount of money from 6 to 12, and that's why you want these trade cards with money on them, to allow you to pay to be in the guild. Now, how are you going to defeat these ships? Well, everyone starts with a strength of one with their warships, but there are three areas within your home which you can improve, and that's the fifth and final action. When you choose that on the action selector, you can choose to either improve the strength of your warships, you can choose to take more discs into your pool because you have a very limited pool, and when you wish to take a place into the guild, you must place one of your discs, and you might run out of them and not be able to take any more actions. Also, you can do achievements during the course of the game, and you do that by doing the warships, by claiming them, that's also gonna suck up part of your disc supply. Now, the achievements are gonna give you points at the end of the game for different things. They come in three decades, two for each decade, and you don't usually get access to ones from previous decades. And they're gonna pay out points at the end for having stuff like having traded with lots of different ships or traded with lots of the same type of ship or having lots of money or having been on achievements or for the shape of spaces you've covered in the guild area. And that's the third thing you can get from your house is you can get extra virtual guild members. Now, why are we getting to these guild members? Because at the end of the game, there's only two things that are gonna score you points. The number of ships you've been able to trade with or conquer multiplied by the number of members you have in the guild at all, and also any points you've got from those achievements, they'll change from game to game, and it will be for achieving, obviously, certain things during the game. And the player who scores the most points is going then to have won Carthago. Sean, it's a small-ish box game. You only get 15 turns in it. It takes more than 60 minutes to play. So is it worth it? So you mentioned, Roland, that it is a, a small-ish box game. One thing I want to get onto first, obviously I like to talk about the, the look and the design of the game. What, what drew this one to you? Because you're the one that brought it into the pit. You're the one that brought it down to us and sort of said, like, I want everyone to play this because you'd played it previously. What, what drew you in? Because it doesn't really have a massive table presence. The looks of the game don't really draw you in, although I do quite like that sort of the, 
the style of the game because it's reminiscent of the sort of Carthage style of art. So what, what brought you to it? Well, I'll address both your points there. Firstly, the look of it, I think it looks familiar, as in, okay, all the iconography is very clear. You know where you're going. It's got quite a Euro look to it, but I don't think it looks dull. It doesn't edge over into that at all. I think the trade cards are quite nice and the ship cards are quite nice. What drew me in, as your second point is, this is an adaptation of Porto Cathargo, which was a very small release of mine games. I don't think it did that well. And from 2010 Essen, which had a really interesting, it had similar actions to it, but you had a group of dobbers. I think, I'm trying to go back to remember, you had about 15 of them and they counted as everything. They counted as your action selectors, they counted as your income, they counted as your military presence, and the game was very much about managing how many dobbers you have at the end of a round, because that's going to be your income without money, you can't do anything, but without having them out on the board in certain places, like they would dictate how strong your warships were, how many dobbers have you got in there, but then you're sacrificing other areas to have strong warships. And I really like the system. It didn't tie together perfectly, but it was a really good game that had a very small release. So when I heard that they'd sort of adapted that system, and I think a lot of the adaptation was Ralph Beinart, when they adapted the system, I was immediately onto it. And I was hopeful, because I was very fond of, of the father game, since we're using <laughs> that phrase in this episode, and that's why I sort of became a bit, a little bit evangelical about the game without even having played it. Cool. So we've, we've talked about it as a small box game. It doesn't take up a lot of space on the table. But what I quickly found, Ronan, is that in terms of things to do, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck, as the term goes. There are loads of options in this, and there's just little tiny options that all make a lot of sense. Really easy game to teach, more than the sum of its parts, Ronan. Yeah, I, I think in terms of you said it was easy to teach, I think that's because the rules are really smooth. There's no stumbling blocks, there's no little exceptions, there's no, oh, you can do that, but only if you've got that in your hand, or you can do this, but you have to have done three things first beforehand. You can almost always take any of the five actions, and but the tightness comes from the fact you only have 15 actions in the whole game. So I, I think that's what adds together, that that tightness and the fact that they haven't tried to make it too sprawling and, and too long and too epic and there's another game i want to talk about that in our next episode that's coming up but they haven't tried to hang too much on it makes each of those small decisions feel weighty sean yes it certainly does and yeah that feeling that you always want to do more that's a good thing in games it is and a part of that also i think is that there is interaction in the game, so you can never perfectly plan ahead. And sometimes that feeling that you want to do more is because you have to have a flexible approach because there's just enough interaction with, like on the action selection wheel, if one or two doubles are in the place you need to go and you haven't got those cards in your hand, it can force you to, to spend an extra action just, just stalling and they all feel like, oh, do I want to spend another one? Now you can kind of get blocked out in the docks more more if someone trades or doesn't trade because you take a berth and when someone trades, all the ships that were further out move along. So you might say, okay, I'm going to take the second spot. Sean's in first spot because he's going to trade and the ships will slide along and then the ship that I really want's there. And then Sean spends four of the 15 actions not trading. And he goes, like, why aren't you trading? But then there's other things you can do, like getting a ship early, which allows you to trade in any other good when you're trading with a ship, so that that gives you flexibility. But is that ship exactly the one you want, or do you have to plan to get to it? And like I say, they all interlock with each other, but what other players are doing interlock with what you're doing as well. 
And that can lead to that feeling off, off each one. Yeah, the first time I played this one, Ronan, I, th- I felt like I spotted a little bit of a flaw in that it was too easy to block the dock and so to stop people getting... Because you could just sit multiple of uh, your counters in there. And then the next time I played it, I realised actually it's not that easy because you've actually got to have the counters to be able to do that in the first place. So you've got to do a lot of other things to get to that point. And by that stage, obviously, other people will start infiltrating into that dock. So I kind of answered my own point there. But uh, I think first time playing it, I wasn't as convinced as I was in subsequent plays. It was a grower. Yeah, for sure. I think yeah, I think it can be a bit of a hard sell in terms of that, in that when you initially get it out and show it to people, they kind of go, what? Have they got 15 things to do? And because it's got that early 2000s-ish look to it and it's kind of brownie and people haven't heard of it, it is quite a hard sell. But people have to give it a chance because of the smooth teaching. And to me, and this is a question I'm going to put to you, it's the thematic feeling of the game. And I don't mean, obviously, like adventure and rolling dice. I mean, do you actually feel like you're wheeling, dealing, taking opportunities that they come at you, on that action wheel, nipping in and out? Was that what started to, to breed for you as you played it more? Not really, no. I don't think I ever oh. got that. <laughs> I didn't ever feel that in itself. I know the cards are quite thematic in the way they look and stuff, but I never actually felt like I was within the game. I was the person that was doing these things. I, it was almost like a quite an abstract strategy game where I was thinking, what is my best move? What's most advantageous to me? And one thing I will touch on, Ronan, is the thing I haven't been able to shake off that is not a flaw in the game, but there's an almost must-do, and that is to build up your attack value so you can attack those ships when they're randomly turned over. Now, I think that's almost a must, and you have to do that quite early because what you don't want to do is have those ships turn over and not be able to get them onto your tableau. So I felt like that was almost a a no-brainer. I think it's one of two main strategies you can do. The thing with building up the strength, and this is why I like the way the house works, because the three different areas, and, and you said it there, do you want to get loads of discs out? Okay, that's one of the columns you can go down, because for finishing a column, you get a virtual guild member, which can be worth lots of points to at the end of the game. If you go down strengthening your, your warship early, you're not getting extra discs out, so they can become tight, and also you're not claiming the virtual guild members, so is it worth the payoff because you're getting another ship which will multiply your guild members but you've got fewer guild members and that's something that you have to balance between and if you take both those routes then you're not getting the extra discs you'll have fewer discs to then put onto the achievements and you're giving up that and that's kind of the fine balance but having said that I can only really see two main paths so one of my concerns about this may be variety between plays it's interactive, but there's not massive amounts of different strategies you can explore. So, Ronan, I think I'm, I'm ready to sum up on this one. I think it's a very clever game. I like the multi-use cards. They use them in lots of different ways. As I said at the, right at the top, it doesn't have a massive presence, but what you do is it draws you into this, this conundrum, and you're trying to solve this conundrum, and you're trying to, as Rona said, there's these two, three parts, and you're trying to balance them all, and you want to do them all, and you can't do them all, and it's a very, very good problem to have in, in a game. For such a small price point, and such a small footprint, I think... I'm going to use the phrase again, Ronan, you're getting a hell of a lot of bang for your buck in this one, and I'm personally glad that you brought this one to my attention 
Well, I'd, I'd like to thank you for thanking me. That's, that's, <laughs> that's beautiful. It fits its niche. It's not world-changing. It's not the greatest game I've ever played. But it's definitely one of the better 60-minute, smaller games that I've played in the last year or two. You have to think on your feet. You have to adapt, but all in moderate measures. You can't throw away what you've been planning to do. You have to adapt to what trade cards you get when you're drawing and when you've traded to say, okay, that gives me strength in that action, that's good. Or it hasn't given me strength in that action. I have to wait for that to be available. So I need two or three different routes I can go down for the next one or two actions. And that all keeps me, uh, yeah, you have to be flexible, but I still have to have an overall plan. And I like it. It's really smooth to teach. It's smooth to play. And I think it deserves a big audience, certainly more than its father game got. And that is our review of Cathargo. Sean, you are going to lead us onwards down the river. It's another ancient civilization, Roman. We're going into ancient Egypt. And this is Sailing Toward Osiris. It's the 2018 release from Daily Magic Games, designed by W. David McKenzie, who, interestingly enough, owns Clever Mojo Games. And it plays two to four players. So, theming behind Sailing Towards Osiris is the Pharaoh is dead, and his funeral barge is sailing down the Nile, to eventually stand before the judgment of Osiris himself or herself. As the pharaoh had no children, the new pharaoh will be the governor of the land who provides the greatest tribute to the pharaoh. And if you've guessed it, the players are the governors and we are looking to build monuments along the Nile and that's going to be our tribute to the pharaoh. So on the table we have a board and that depicts the Nile and it's split into four sections. And it's surrounded by different terrain for resource collection. You've got grain, clay and stone. And each player in front of them has a screen. And this will hide all their resources and all their workers. They will also have three sets of monuments to build, each and a camel. On a turn, the pharaoh's barge represents the four seasons, i.e. the four rounds of the game. And it's moving along the river to depict each round. On a turn, the players are going to draw workers from a bag. Now, the workers are linked to the resource types, and they can only collect from the matching terrain. You have a basic worker, which can be placed in the sections where the barge is already arrived at or has already passed through. And you've also got a master worker, and these can be placed anywhere, so they can advance past the barge. Players basically continue getting these resources and they've got to build monuments with the resources. When these monuments actually go into the worker placement areas and they're going to block them off so there's fewer of these areas as the game moves on. Also in the game there are boon cards that the player is going to start off with and once per round they can use these. And also city cards that you can obtain throughout the game. Both can be used to gain advantage or to break the rules, rules slightly. I mentioned the camels at the beginning. Now these can be placed into camps and they basically can get you more resources and there are also spaces to recruit more workers and a market to trade goods. This all continues until the barge reaches the fourth section and this triggers the end of the game where, as most games are, the person scoring the most points from the monuments will become the new pharaoh, Ronan. Sailing towards Osiris. Aside from a fairly bland board but i understand why they did it a fabulous production sean really nice pieces and big table appeal a huge table appeal uh 
you know, the artwork on the individual cards and the, on your player screens. So I, I thought the, the board was quite bright and quite sort of cheerful almost. It's just sand with the Nile going through it. it was, yeah, I, I know you're I, putting colourful pieces on there. Yeah. So you don't want the board to be too busy because then it would be clashy. I understand why they did it. But apart from that, was the one exception, the production of the pieces and everything was really they've done a very very good job with it yeah you could tell this one came through kickstarter and you could tell that and uh, i didn't actually investigate it while it was a kickstarter he kind of missed i missed it the boat <laughs> missed the boat mm-hmm. <laughs> completely with that one so i'm guessing that maybe these were upgrades for stretch goals maybe and they've just well, they're one of these companies that included in the box for everyone so yeah maybe but yeah definitely a bright and dynamic feel to the artwork and the components ronan Daily Magic do make nice looking games. Yes, oh, we got. They do. You know, I always help back to Card Kingdoms of Valeria. It looks lovely. The card art is great in that. So they're, they're a company with across the board high production values. For every high, there must be a low. I do wish they'd gone for a different theme, and in two different ways. The first one is we've seen Egypt and the Nile and this sort of iconography so much that it, it wasn't fresh and the second thing is for me it's just a variant it's just another dead king game at the theme oh the king's dead the pharaoh's dead the chieftain's dead a god is dead yeah. and you are the rivals vying to be the next one up well one of the points i'm 100 percent on board with the other poor the other one not so much now the one i'm 100 percent on board with is the dead king yeah, I mean, that, that is rife, and that is rife throughout the games from, like, the 90s, the noughties, right up to the present day. There's always been those Dead King games. Now, I think there's been a bit of a tail-off in e- ancient Egypt games. I don't think there's been that many recently, for sure. And most of the ones that I, I can name off the top of my head are all sort of, sort of 5, 10, 15 years old now. So I think maybe I'll give them a pass on that, but certainly a familiar theme. Uh, just sticking with that a little bit because it's kind of the theme of my review towards it and what my approach is. Really approachable in graphic design mm-hmm. and in the way the game progresses and the fact that everything makes sense. You can see where the ship is going. You can see that that's going to open up and as things close behind, more opportunities open up further ahead. And you can see the direct impact of the actions you take during the game. There's nothing obfuscated. There's not a lot that's multi-step. And the iconography helps with all that in that I do this, it has that direct impact. Yes, super easy game to learn. The iconography certainly helps that. But just touching on your point a little bit there, Roland, one of the things I felt, especially during my first game, was, was that I almost felt a little bit disjointed right at the beginning of my first game because I didn't realise, like, you don't really sort of understand how much the board is going to fill up and you kind of, you don't really know what to go for at the beginning. There's no clear path, or I didn't see one anyway, right from the beginning. You've kind of got, right, okay, so I can I can go from there and there if I've got only basic workers and if, I, if I'm lucky enough to get a master, I can, but what do I want to go for? And I, right at the beginning... I just felt like there wasn't a clear nod towards the end of the game. Uh, yeah, I, I, I take your point, but I'm going to use it to lead on to another point in that, <laughs> okay, but what you start with, although you're building monuments, is not set in stone. 
I'll give you a second to appreciate that. I'm appreciating it. Yeah, shall I move on? Move on. (laughs) And that is an approach that's taken throughout the whole game. Everything is slightly mitigated. So yes, I can understand kind of that feeling of being a bit all at sea at the beginning and saying, well, I don't know, because I can do something of everything. But as soon as you start doing something, your pattern then emerges. The game in every stage brings in a sort of backdoor mitigation so that nothing is too punishing. And that includes how you start off the game. It also goes through to things like being vicious to each other and blocking off. Mm-hmm. For example, because there's always a way, you know, if you're trying to create a chain of monuments to get your bonus scoring and someone throws one in the middle, there's ways of moving monuments around. There is, yes. There's sort of the card play. So it never really ties you in. It never gets to a level of frustration. Although it is wide open at the beginning, it's not one of those that you feel like, right, here's my first step. Six turns time, I go, ah, that was a complete misstep and I'm never going to catch up. I think, yeah, if you're not a complete imbecile and don't spend the one wait, of your wait, don't, cards. Don't, don't leap to that conclusion. <laughs> As I was spending one of my boon cards to move a monument right at the beginning. Don't do that, people. Um, <laughs> yeah, you kinda, you, there, are, there is that mitigation to it, Ronan, for sure. But what you learn, I think, as you go on and play this game more and more, is that there are other little things that you can do to be quite mean, and there's not necessarily mitigations against those. It's it's blocking off the actual monument building spots. You can leave your your dobber there and block off that monument building spot throughout a whole round, and someone might be desperate to build out those sphinx, and you're blocking off the sphinx spots. And you just leave it there because you know you can build it at any time. Think little things like that just come to the fore once you've played it a few times. And I'm still discovering little bits. But what I do want to say about this game, Ronan, is throughout every game I've played, it just screams gateway game. It is the perfect game to develop gamer brain. For sure. Where if you haven't played whatever we want to call these games, modern games, whatever you might be, it's very hard to sometimes get into that pattern and get, and you have to be introduced to that way. Most people, look, some people can pick up Zolkin as their first game and play it. I still can't play Zolkin. We played it yesterday. I came last. The leader doubled my points. Anyway, <laughs> some people can do that. Most people can't. And certainly for myself, in the first year or two I was playing games, I didn't like games that were too interactive, but then I didn't like solitaire games. And this hits that balance perfectly. Mm. Also, with stuff like the timing of your boons and the use of your cards, and then looking into, like you say, there's a level of mechanisms which is obvious where you can play and do okay and score some points and not get frustrated and feel like, oh, yeah, okay. The second time you play, you will probably get better. And the third time you play, you'll probably get better again. It was all experienced players playing. I, I don't think that progress would happen. So I think it's a perfect game to begin a journey or continue on a journey into the hobby. Yeah. Well, I've written actually something down on my notes and it's literally not enough to have multiple players as a seasoned player, but certainly an interesting experience for players new to the scene. Um, well, that's that's a very formal way of phrasing There that. you go, yeah. <laughs> they should write that on the box, dude. That's like a real punch, that phrase. <laughs> So I, th- I think we're kind of getting into danger of retreading the same ground here. So I'm just yeah. going to kick in because cool. my first comment on my sum up is perfect gateway drug. It develops good play. It develops that pattern of thinking. 
it breaks mass market gaming conventions, bad habits or what have you, or patterns of play that you get from playing more mass market games. For nascent gamers, it's absolutely perfect. For me, other than playing it as that, I'm not going to get pulled back to the table again and again. But for what they've tried to do, it can't be faulted. Yeah, for me, you've, you start off with the really nice component quality, so I'm drawn in by that. And then what I noticed that there, there was, even as an experienced player, there was a couple of things that developed over one or two plays. Now, I don't think this is one that I'm going to play week in, week out. This is like a every few months type game. But f- for that, it's, it's a good, solid game. Definitely one for a gateway game and for introducing those concepts that maybe a ticket to ride or something might not quite bring to the fore i think it also scales well i think for all player counts it scales really well and it's a recommended game for me but maybe not for myself all the time and that is sailing toward osiris well should you happen to come across Centerville as you're sailing towards the virus, <laughs> virus while you're sailing towards Osiris? That well-known ancient Egyptian town, yeah. <laughs> I, I will give you a great welcome to Centerville, Sean, oh, in a you? seamless segue. <laughs> this is Welcome to Centerville, a 2017 game. Two to four players taking around 75 minutes from GMT Games, famous for publishing, probably heavier and more warlike games than this usually, and designed by Chad Jensen, who has the award for having designed the unarguably best game ever designed, Dominant Species, and also Combat Commander and Urban Sprawl. Definitely not the best game ever designed. Anyway, (laughs) what are we doing? Welcome to Centerville. We are rolling some dice in order to develop the town of Centerville, and we're doing it competitively against each other. We are going to be scoring in both prestige and wealth, and at the end of the game, the lowest of those two scores is going to be your end score. On your turn, you're going to pick up six dice, you're going to roll them, you have up to two re-rolls, and you can re-roll any dice apart from if you've rolled a time icon, because rolling a time icon pushes the time along the track, you get a small little uh, little boon for doing that, it's not great. And then uh, once we've gone through three rounds down the track, at the end of each round we're going to score, and there's some final endgame scoring at the end of that third round. What are we trying to do? Well, Centerville itself is on the board, it's split into four quarters, and there's a dice which is coloured to match each of the four quarters and on one of the faces of those dice is a contract and when you use contracts you can use a contract of a color that can be boosted up by wild results you can get on these dice or contracts of other colors and that's going to allow you to build in the city each of the quarters of the city has got three levels you need one two or three matching dice faces to build in level one two or three and you're going to do that because each of those quarters is going to score and punish the leader and the loser respectively at the end of each of the three rounds and two of the quarters are going to score and punish you in wealth and two are going to score and punish you in prestige if you get four results of the same type of anything during the game, you're going to get a special bonus. And it happens that in contracts, you get an increase in your status, which is another track in the game. And you're going to want to do that because status will score you points at the end of the three rounds. But also when you get kicked out of status, you earn favors and favors allow you to break the rules of the game at certain times. And most especially 
to break the status quo, like moving people out of the areas in the city or stealing some of the things they have collected. The last thing you do in that city is that if you roll three benches, which basically means a bench on the green die and two wilds, you can put a cube in the park and that counts as one strength in each of the four quarters. That's the city sorted, but there's other stuff we can do. We can roll trees to go up a tree track, which is going to help us score points at the end of rounds. Three trees lets us build a villa. Again, we can choose for that villa to be prestige or wealth to help us balance out our scoring. If we get four trees, we get to build one of four. There's only four of them. Level four buildings in a city. There's one in each quarter, and that's going to help you dominate those quarters. There are education results. The number of education results you get is going to give you access to vocation tiles. The more education results you have, the better or rarer vocation tiles you're going to get. And at the end of the game, those are going to score you for sets of the same and also sets of different ones. Last thing you can really do with your die rolls are you can get votes. And there are six different offices you can claim. And when you claim those offices, you're going to get bonuses. For example, if you claim the mayor, you go straight to the top of the status track, which will score you points and also give you a chance to get those favour tokens. You might get an immediate extra go with just one die missing. You might get bonuses or you might be immune from hazards on the various tracks around the board and any player passes them you take the hazard tile up and no one gets to look at it it goes into the bag of vocation tiles when it gets drawn bad things are going to happen to you unless you are indeed immune if you ever do get four votes you could do one of those special actions and hand them in and you can choose a colored die and you don't have to roll it on your turn you can choose the face off it the last type of scoring you get is that everyone is dealt a legacy tile at the beginning of the game from a pool. You get to see it, no one else does, but at the end of the game, all players are going to score for whatever it is that is on your legacy tile. Sean, welcome to Centerville. Perhaps an unusual game to be published by GMT. It very much has the feeling of a roll and write game. But on a board, so you're using cubes to mark things rather than a marker, and on a shared board at that. Yeah, so you stole my thunder there. I was, that was that was going to be my opening gambit. It felt like a roll and write game. So thanks. For That's that. because it's so obvious. <laughs> it's just the thing you have to say. This feels like a roll and write with more. Obvious kid is obvious. That's fine. <laughs> kid. Kid. Um, obvious lump is obvious. Obvious lump is lumpy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously lumpy. Obviously, Should we move lumpy? on. Yeah, let's move on. Okay, so, so I, got, I recently got into a little bit of trouble for for mentioning box covers. Now, the box cover of this actually draws me in and makes me. I want to go to Centerville based on the box cover. So I'm looking at that. I'm thinking, oh, look, it's really nice artwork. I'm, I'm enjoying the box cover. Let's see what's in. And when you get into the box, it's all a bit spreadsheety. It's it's all a bit. So I like that. That's the way your mind works, you're boring. Come on. I like grids. I like straight lines. I like spreadsheets. I like clear information. There's a lot going on on that board. It could have been a really busy board. To me, it's not. And to me, I can look at the board and grok the game situation immediately. So did you really, really... I can't remember. Did you really hate the look of Inish? Yeah, like the opposite of this, it's just all wavy lights. We had rounds about it on the podcast. I think it looks terrible. (laughs) And the fact it played terribly didn't help my. How dare they not have a straight line on that game? (laughs) 
We could do a mini review of Inish if you want. <laughs> it was all right, but it had the Discworld problem or the nanny, whatever it's called now, with the controversial immigrant rule in it. I don't know what they were thinking there. But um, it just got to the end where oh, you stop him, you stop him, you stop her, she stops you, she stops her, I stop you, stop you. Oh, you forgot to stop that person. That's the one that wins. It could have been any of us, but that's the one that someone forgot to stop. And that was Inish. And Nanny Nantucky. Nantucky, yeah. Well, no, Con- controversial immigrant. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit... It was a strange choice. Anyway, <laughs> we, moving should on. Should we go back to Centerville? They'll welcome us back with open arms. They will welcome us back. It. So, I didn't feel... feel oh, so you didn't feel I, feel? I didn't feel feel. You know okay. what I'm saying? Feels gutted. I don't think I can say much more about that game. I didn't feel feel. Is that your closing statement? That's my closing statement. I didn't feel I was in Centerville. I didn't feel it was thematic. When I started to feel like something, I, okay, that makes sense, that makes sense. You bring in the dice and it's like, right, that's, that makes no sense. Yeah, but I have that problem with every game in this genre. I, You know, every one I play, whether it's No Siesta or Steamrollers or whatever it might be, I almost prefer it when they're not thematic, where they just go, you know, Gantron, Glebo, whatever, it's just all right. It's so hard to tie a theme to that. So, doesn't it just come with the territory? Am I being too lenient with it there? Maybe, maybe, but I think, for me, my personal thoughts are, like, I like to delve into a game, I like to feel I'm in that game. And when a game is abstract, fine, my mindset is in, okay, well, that's abstract. But you're kind of drawing me in with that box cover, you're drawing me in with all these... Can can I just ask you how exciting you thought a game about town planning was going to be? Oh, I was so excited. I've got Town Centre, I've got the one by Golden Egg Games, I can't remember what it's called, Uh, I, I like the thought of building up a town. I, <laughs> I'm a Sim City man. What do you expect? Yeah, man. I bet you played with monsters and disasters on and all that rubbish, didn't you? No. Spread messing with my spreadsheets. Okay. It's anyway, got weird right, already. Right, so, okay, let me say something. No, why would I let you say anything? I don't know. Go on then. <laughs> go on, go on, go on. It's tricky to explain, and I was trying to think why it was tricky to explain, and I think it's because. The actions that you're doing are not obviously linked to the way they score, and that can be also part of the thematic disconnect. Because you're looking at it going, okay, so if I place down a level three building in the blue quarter, I would expect maybe to score three points, but it doesn't do that. It gives you a majority, which might give you points if someone else doesn't jump in ahead of you, and then it might prevent you from losing. And then it's one of the two different points. And when you're looking at your two scores and you're going... I'm really behind here in money, but my prestige is good. And you look at the board and you think, why? Why? How has that happened? I don't understand why one is above the other because my actions don't tie into that. It's not like I'm investing in something to get my money up. I'm doing exactly the same almost as I am to get my prestige up. It's just that half the board is this and half the board's that. And I think that's where the theme could have been tied in a bit better. It certainly takes a turn or three to sort of get your head round what, where you're going to score your points. And Did you say a game or three? Okay, maybe a game or three. I've and seen your by, scores. <laughs> by this stage, anyone who's got any experience in the game has probably lapped you, as, as Rona often does in this game. I've never quite managed to get my head round it. Now, I touched on earlier, Ronan, that part of the 
thematic disconnect was the dice rolling, but I also felt like the dice were quite harsh within the game itself. So you've got what what I've termed as this almost spreadsheet game, roll and write game, but let's take away the roll away, but like a spreadsheet, and you're doing things to influence things, and you're trying to get area majorities, and you're trying to win votes, and you're trying to you're trying to get all these things that you feel like you're going to have a lot of control over, and all of a sudden these dice come in and they can completely undermine everything you're trying to do so i think in this one you've got to have two or three strategies and just go with the flow and that didn't sit quite right with me as well it still sounds like a review of the whole genre (laughs) (laughs) but this doesn't do any differently to any of the other ones it's how can you have a strategy oh i i rolled for education i'll I'll take the media tile i rolled through education i'll I'll take that all right i'm definitely going after definitely going after the vocations I didn't roll another one for seven yeah, turns. But the game feels like you should have a strategy and you should be you should be working towards something and some and, and you, you aren't really. You're just you're going with the rolls. You have to accept it. You've got to roll with the rolls. Roll with the rolls. Or blow with the rolls? No, I think you've no, not that. Okay. No, no. Okay, but I all right, here we go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna end with a good and a bad. You ready? Do you want the good or the bad first? I'll have the bad. There's nothing to do when it's not your turn, and players' turns can take a while. Yeah, that's absolutely true, yes. yes. Brilliant. So you just agree with me, Sean, and we'll cut half of the podcast <laughs> out and it'll be the bad half, so that's fine. <laughs> I like some of the interactions. I like the interactions with the votes because you have to build up a lead in the votes and you have to have more than the current uh, occupant to take over. But at the end of each scoring round, they'll score loads of points and you score in both categories, actually, for having votes. It can be quite powerful. It resets down and they only have one presence. And immediately with two, you can take it off them again. So there's a bit of nip and tuck and, and, and what have you. And certain ones become more powerful. They fade in power, whereas like the fire chief, who, you know, immune from the hazards, that, that becomes more powerful as the game goes on. And in terms of the town... As long as you've got some favours, you've understood, pump my status up so I can get favours. You can kick people out of the town and it can become swingy like that. And you can actually go after someone in an area where they're weak. Like if I'm on 100 prestige, but only 60 money, I will start kicking out all my money cubes out of the town using your favours. And then I start being in real trouble. And I like that there is interaction, not necessarily between turns, but on your turn, you can affect the other players. Yeah, there were certain. Don't get me wrong. I'm I'm being very negative about this so far. Yeah, because I found it frustrating more than I didn't like it. There were certain elements of the game that I really did enjoy, and that was going to be part of my summing up. Where the, the vote when you're going into the council space and you're you're trying to get the votes and the to and fro of that and being ousted and going back in and which ones do you want to gain control over and which ones can you gain just, control just, over? Just a little note on that. If you're ever playing me and Sean at Welcome to Centerville and we start rowing over a vote space. Leave us to it. We're going to waste most of our turns. <laughs> I now have nine cubes in there. Yeah, now I've got ten. <laughs> that didn't seem possible, but you've, but you've done, done nothing else for eight rounds. <laughs> but I beat you, and I score a point. So there you go. <laughs> that bit I enjoyed, <laughs> and there were elements in there that I enjoyed. But yeah, go on, roll into your I'm, sum up. Yeah, I think I'm ready to on, sum up. I, I yeah. just. I wanted to go to Centreville. I wanted to settle down and bring up my family and have lots of fun in Centreville. And what I felt was it, it just didn't live up to the poster. It just didn't live up to the estate and what the estate agent told me it was going to be like in Centreville. 
normally I'm a dice man. Normally dice make everything better, but this one I wanted a little bit more control. The negative scoring really, really is punishing, and sometimes you just it's just by bad luck, and sometimes it's by bad planning, but more often by bad luck. And for once, and I think it's few and far between, I think the dice have actually ruined this game to a large degree. So, uh, Centerville, I'll go and visit you occasionally, but I'm not living in you. Good to know. All right, I'm going to ask you a question before I sum up. Go on. Is part of your reaction to it because it was a GMT game and you're expecting something possibly more strategic or card driven or something like that? 100%. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. it came from this, this publisher. Yes, yes. Marvellous. That was good analysis by me. I've got a little tick next to my name. Yeah, well done, you. Yeah, I am great. <laughs> it's, this is a mashup of stuff that I've seen already. There was nothing in that really excited me. I think that barrier I discussed between mechanisms and scoring, it makes it hard for new players. It means experienced players are going to win, which I, that actually is a good sign for the game. It means you get better and you learn and you realise when to exploit certain opportunities and when there's low numbers of votes somewhere, jump in there while you can and, and all the rest of it. So that's quite cool, but it does seem at the beginning too much for the weight of game you're playing. You're just doing a three re-roll game. Yahtzee in effect, but with fancy bits. So having to then puzzle out this double scoring thing can feel too much to people. The whole genre, as I kept saying it to Sean, I was definitely doing projection there. I don't like roll and write games. All power to those that do, and we know that there's lots of people that do. They're hugely popular. I'm yet to find one that I really enjoy, to be honest with you. And this didn't greatly change my mind. But I think it's a well-done game. It's one of my more favoured of them. There's plenty of Roll and Write games I'll just refuse to play. This one I will play and, and enjoy playing it. So, well done, but Welcome to Centreville was not exciting to me. That is the end of our first half. We're going to have the tiniest little breaks, do what you've got to do, and join us back here. And Sean is going to go searching for buried treasure? Arr, maybe. I. Hello and welcome back to part two. We're going to kick off now with Loot Island, a 2017 release from What's Your Game, designed by Aaron Harg, who did Yanan, which is a game me and Ronan quite liked, but never really got to play again after our initial play. And it's two to five players. So the year is 1640 AD and a terrible curse has been cast upon a beautiful island in the Indian Ocean. This curse means that dark magic will affect anyone taking anything away from the island. Now we're going to fast forward in its 1902, and we are treasure hunters who have, between us, found fragments of a treasure map that lead us to the cursed island. So on the table... We have a small board, and I mean a small board, representing the island and the sea around it. Also on the board are two circles depicting landing areas on each corner of the island, and four spaces for a little wooden ship piece to move. Around the board are smaller island tiles, and these have special actions on them. And each player is going to have a character card, a hand of treasure map cards, and three discs of their colour. There are also event cards, treasure cards, healer cards, and curse cubes. The main part of the player turns will be playing these map cards 
to any landing on the island. The placement rules are that any card can be placed onto an empty landing, but subsequent cards must match the colour and be equal or higher numbers than the one already placed. The player adding the cards will also then add a disc from their supply. And some of the cards have special powers uh, that can affect the players with discs already on the landing. Like giving more cards, giving them curse cubes and more. So why are they doing this? Well, if the wooden ship is in the corner with a landing or landings with at least six cards on them, they will score and the players will get to search for loot. The person lowest in the stack, i.e. closest to the board, will have first choice and will most likely get more treasure choices than the others. I, I spoke about curse cubes earlier. Now you're going to amass these by taking the treasures from the, the map cards throughout the game. If you ever have 13 or more at the game end, you're eliminated. Otherwise, you're going to gain money for your loot cards, and these all score in differing ways. You have set collection, majorities, face value, etc. And lastly, there are a selection of healer cards available. And you're going to choose these, and they're going to remove your curse cubes. But you will have to pay different amounts, because each of them are different. The player with the fewest curse cubes is going to choose first, and so on. After all the curses are removed, the player with the most money left wins the game. Ronan, Loot Island. We covered this one in one of our treasure, Trapple Treasure, Treasure Hunt, Treasure Hunt episodes. If you can remember the name of our formats, please. <laughs> Why would I be able to do this at... It is now half past midnight. Never going to happen. Because we're both going on to night shifts, we really should be waking up around this time of night. When has that ever worked? True, right. True. We did cover it in the treasure hunt. Didn't you say it was a treasure? I said I was worried about it, I believe, but I said it was a treasure because what's your game? I'm a big fan of what's your game. Because of um, what? What's your game? Yeah, yeah, no. Can you just... Is the, is the game anywhere near you? Why? I need you to check the box. It's not near me. I need you to check that they still published it, that this is actually a What's Your Game game. I see where you're going now. You had me confused for a moment there. I see where you're going. It is the least What's Your Game game that, that What's Your Game ever gamed? gamed. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, but seriously, they're here every week. <laughs> my mother-in-law. Uh. What? I don't know. I just. I feel like I, I need to get them into some sort of therapy, or we need to have a hug and a chat, or a safe place, or something, some trust falls. Yeah, what's your game? The tight, cube pusher, economical. Produce this? Right. I don't. Sometimes when we're reviewing. Especially because we're going to do our top three of these six games at the end for the for the grand finale. I like to hold back a little bit. I give you my opinion, but you know you'll find out at the end what I really thought of them. But there's not a lot I can hold back here, Sean, and I really don't feel like holding back. What is this game? Right, okay, so let's 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 break it down, bro. Let's break it down. We saw this one in our treasure hunt, and we were looking at the box, and obviously you don't get a feel for the size of the box. And then we went to Essen, and then we saw it on the table, and I was like, is that like a miniature? Is that the travel edition? It's a tiny little board with tiny little components. Just just bizarre. I suppose it's functional. You try to dodge the abuse for things not having shelf presence by saying the size of the box looks odd. 
No, the size of the board. The size of the oh, board. board. Yeah, no, not the board. Like, but if was, the board was any big, I mean, like you do lines of cards out of it. It takes up enough of a put. Yeah, footprint, I suppose. I suppose it, it is. is. Yeah, it's fun. So what else are you going to do? It had to be, right. yeah. Trust me. If we're talking about issues with this game, that is not one of no, the no, top thirty. Right. Okay, I'm going to try and pick apart a few of the things. In fact, what I did was I took a top three things that I didn't like about the game. All right. <laughs> uh, how how long was the list? Uh, oh, Jesus, <laughs> longer than that. Longer than this episode. and that, This episode is going to be long enough as it is. Right, let's go with... Let's start with the small island. Instead of playing a card, you can flip over on the small islands, the six of them... They reset yeah, between to, each round. And you have to have two this. matching cards of the same card. Two matching cards and discard them off. Discard them, and, yes, and, yes, yeah. yes. Okay, great. Yeah. Totally remove the benefit of planning in the game. Add total and utter rubbish. If they weren't in it, the game would be 20% better. They do things like move the ship on a whole coast. Now, the ship only ever moves in one direction. If you've set up your hand of cards to be winning some treasure in a thing, and someone, just for their turn, just flips that island, which is always available every round, it's not even a once-a-game thing, and moves the ship on, you know, all your cards are left behind. You're just like, what are you doing that for? But it's neither fish nor fowl, because what they could have done was add multiple times. Like, because when you use one of these islands in a round, you flip it down, and there's only one use of each of the islands so if you'd have had like multiple uses and say so people could try and get that ship back towards where they wanted it everyone could do it once a game yeah or yeah something yeah something like that instead of six tiles so i'm gonna use use my one ship thing yeah fine okay yeah you you you, you knackered me now but now i know you can't do that anymore so now i can plan a bit more surrounding your abilities so yeah, or like it would be funny if everyone could just move it, uh, move it around. It wouldn't be great, but it'd be funny. This is just irritating because you know that one person doesn't want it there. So you've almost got a waste of turn if you're ahead in turn order. If you're not, they're going to move it. Or move the order of discs in a stack. So irritating because the order of distance stack can be so important first choice. And let's say there's three distance stack and there's four treasures. You get two treasures. You get the first. Tre- so important. So much part of the actual tactics in the game of getting in first, taking control. Yeah, 100%. Again, somebody can decide, right, okay, that's got loads of treasure in it. That's going to have like 12 treasures. I'm not on that island. Right, I'm going to join that. If that small island is available where you can move your disc all the way to the bottom, all the other players have got to waste cards and their cards are very valuable in the game. To stop you getting that. Now, they might already be at the bottom. They've got to waste those cards. And it's one use. Again, that's, that's gone. If, they, if you get to it because you just happen to get to it, then for doing nothing, you're going to get the first pick of all the treasure. This is this issue leeching into my next issue. But if you are second, or th- or third or fourth in turn order, you can't set the colour for the first two where the ship, here, ship is at the moment. You could set the colour for the next two. So that's where your planning is. I'm planning to, to make up for this shortfall here. Like Sean set the colours black there. Rachel set the colour as brown there. Right, great. So I'm going to set the colours of the cards I've got here on the next one. But someone could just push the ship past. Or someone could just change the order of the discs. Or someone could do some other kind of rubbish. And you just go, 
Why am I, what am I doing? Why am I playing? And that brings me into Sean knows that it's, this enrages me about the game. And while I call this one thing that's a problem, there are multiple subcategories of the turn order issue. It is absolutely ridiculous. It is the worst turn problem. They have turn order problems in other ones of their games. And they've had to fix other ones of their games for this. They're heavier games. And for some reason, they still get a pass. And I quite like Watch Your Games, so I give them a pass as well. When they mess up Railroad Revolution, and they've got problems with turn order and Nippon and all the other stuff. Okay, okay, but you're trying your best. You didn't try your best with Loot Island. You tried your worst. It's terrible. Right. When you're third or even fourth, or the, the colours of each islands are set, the players you play early gain benefits from other cards that are played on top of theirs. So if Sean chucks a 2-3 down a brown, and then people are trying to get in there because he's chucked a couple... When they put on there, everyone who's in that stack draws an extra card. He's gone first, he's set the colour, he's getting the extra card. Everyone who's already there gets to remove a curse cube. Now he gets to remove a curse cube. What am I getting as a benefit for being third or fourth? Oh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll set up the second coast. Oh, don't worry about it. Sean and his turn are just going to skip past. Also, if I set up the second coast to be a certain colour, I'm doing it from one hand of cards. Let's say I set it up to be whatever, black, on, on one of these things. Sean then can save all his black cards from this turn, get to draw more cards, so he's get two handfuls of cards knowing what colour it's going to be, and then play all the black cards he saved from two handfuls down, whereas I'm just fishing in the deck for more to hopefully not get absolutely screwed over. He has more information to plan his hand than I do. Absolutely rubbish. He's got the advantage on Discorder. He's got the advantage next round to move that ship on from one. So many issues with turn order, and that just means it's a terrible game design. I think it's not just turn order, it's the random card draw, isn't it, as well? Because you've got no agency on what cards you get into your but, hand. But if you're early, in the first round, you it, Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, because that, you can yeah. retain certain cards, and you go, oh, those cards are useful, and those are not. So and then I, I, so you have more chance of getting better cards. Well, there's two, there's two sides to it. Like you mentioned about, like, there are obviously cards that give everyone on the island already a nice little bonus. Um, there are also cards that don't give you any bonus and just add to the treasure or add to the, it counts as two cards, etc. If you've got them, then you don't mind adding to a, a large stack of cards, a bit, a bit more treasure, so you make sure you get a little bit more treasure as well. But you're completely dependent on the card draw. If you join a big treasure hall or you start off on your own landing, it's completely dependent on the cards you get. With the cards and adding cards in, and having to add two islands and moving the ship around, somewhere there, there was a decent idea. Was there? But, but I... I I'm trying... I'm trying to... I'm clutching for straws here, mate. <laughs> so... I before, felt you, like... before you start mollifying on the negativity, I've got to, I've got to light that last firework. Go on then, go on. And is it just going to be a release Sean moment? The end game healer cards. Oh, don't get me started. Let's punish the person who's doing worse. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so at the end of the game, all the healer cards, and there's one for every player, get turned up. And there are some that are obviously the better ones some that are like just here you go you you have to pay seven some if you've got x amount of this and x amount of that you have to pay 38 
So obviously people are going to go, well, okay, well, I'm just going to pay the seven because that's going to make him have to pay or her have to pay 30. So you're already winning the game because you've got the fewest of the curse cubes or you're in a very strong position. And then you're just being punished on top of that. I just don't understand it. I don't understand the thought behind this. You're just punishing somebody who hasn't been able to do very well in the game. I just don't understand. It's it's a rare combination that we rarely see of not mass market mechanisms, gaming mechanisms used to create less fun. <laughs> that that is a rare thing to have pulled off. And but, it, if the game wasn't random, like I've talked about the random cards, the random healer cards, if you get you can get a massive swing on those. We've talked about like obviously you randomize the starters, starter positions. The loot is completely random. You can't say, right, I'm gonna go and dig for this one because I need that type. It's completely random. Again, it's another random part of a random Because game. that's random, what happens then is people will pile on to one pile in a colour. Because they'll go, right, if, if 13 treasure cards come out, even though I'm third in the order, I'm more likely to get something I want because you're collecting medallions, you're collecting the, the crosses, and I'm after whatever. So I'm going to get those. So then you have massive pylons in certain ports and other ports get ignored. And you can't control that either. So you might constantly be starting off ports that never give you any treasure because it doesn't happen to be the fashionable card colour that everyone else has got. Okay, look, this is terrible. It's too chaotic. I have no idea why they published it. It is just one of the worst games I've played recently. Loot Island is awful. So yeah, Loot Island, I kind of gave it a hopeful punt in terms of it was a watch your game production when we did our treasure hunt i then watched the game being played in essen and i was not impressed but we always try to revisit the games that we have covered in our treasure hunts and it came up in the uk games expo for a fiver so you know what for the show i did it for the show ronan i you took one for, for these I, people for these I good took, people <laughs> i took one for the show ronan and i still regret that fiver so it really wasn't worth it Full show, it wasn't. Oh, you know what? At least I've got a, a bag of black cubes if I've ever missing black cubes out of something. Because you ain't trading that away. <laughs> I tried recently. I got yeah, no that, bites. No, thanks, mate. Okay. That was I'll Loot pass. Island. It was Loot Island. Can we move on? Hopefully it will sink beneath the waves. <laughs> Our penultimate game of this episode is Founders of Gloomhaven. A 2018 release for one to four players, taking two hours or maybe slightly upwards. From a previously unheard of company until a couple of years ago, Sir Fennifer Games and Isaac Childress, the man himself of Gloomhaven, well, mega fame, let's call it nowadays. In Founders of Gloomhaven, each of the players is going to play as a race. And all the races are going to be working together to found the city of Gloomhaven in a spirit of harmony. Each race begins with a set type of resource and they get to draft control of one other type of resource or, or a couple if you're playing two player. And the resources you can draft are limited according to your race because you can't get yourself a head start on a certain technology tree of building up through levels of buildings as we develop Gloomhaven as we will discover as we move onwards. The city itself starts as an empty grid with four different types of terrain and split into three different areas and each player has got one stall each 
on the board. Everyone has a deck of action cards. On your turn, you can either play any action card face down, which will give you access to a very basic action, which will be linked to the things I'm about to discuss, or you can do a full action, which every other player around the board gets the choice to follow or take a basic action. If they follow, they get to do kind of the same thing you've done, but slightly less effective, as is familiar with lots of types of these games. What can you do? You can trade as the first type of action. That is how you bring resources onto the board. You can either... Bring one of your own basic resources on. This is the only time you can build anywhere on the board. The other thing you can do is buy into other people's basic resources and their stores by paying money, and you will then slip your disc underneath theirs. Ownership of a building once it's built never changes, but it gives you access to their resources, and you're gonna see why that is important. You're gonna want to build these resources because in order to move up and upgrade, and that is the next action you can take is upgrade, in order to build tier two, tier three buildings, they must have access to these basic eight resources which each of the races start with. And in fact, you must have access by either owning the resource or having paid to get in on someone else's stall. Once you do that, you can choose the upgrade action and choose a tier two building that requires the basic resources that you have got access to, and you can connect to it using roads. You can build roads either from a basic action by using this upgrade action if you choose it for yourself and placing that tier two building down connected to the tier one building is going to score points the person who built it is going to score a certain number of points but depending upon which building you've built some of those points are going to cascade down to the owners of the base resources required for that building it's a spatial puzzle and you're always going to have to cooperate to do this. You will never build a tier two building using only your own resources. And every time you build resources, be it tier one, tier two, or tier three buildings, and tier three buildings often need a combination of tier two or tier one buildings, you are going to push your income up in money because upgrading and trading costs money to get those tiles onto the board. Next thing you can do is you can build a special building. You can build bridges or gates which give you access to the other sections of the city from the things you've built across the walls or the river, but only access to yourself. Roads are open access for everyone. Or you can build a house which must go in a forest, and when you build a house in a forest, that gives you a worker because there is a slight amount of worker placement. One of the basic actions you can do is to place a worker. Each race has its own action, or there are actions on prestige buildings. We're going to get to prestige buildings in a second. The fourth of the five actions you can do is to recruit. You recruit advisors, and this is basically more action cards that come into your hand. They do slightly upgraded versions of the basic actions, and they also, when you recruit, earn you influence. There are two types of influence in the game. It's lasting or it's fleeting. Fleeting will disappear the next time someone does the final action, which is call to vote. When you call to vote, you're going to get a bonus dependent upon the number of cards left in your hand. Then all other players are going to get their income in money, dependent upon the number of resources that they have got access to. Then there are three prestige buildings that have been on offer, and everyone's going to vote on which prestige building they wish to be built. You're going to use influence you've gathered from those actions, be they fleeting or lasting. Fleeting and disappear at the end of this round, lasting will not, but lasting is worth two votes rather than the one of a fleeting. It's your choice how important this prestige building is to you, and let me tell you, it is vital to control the prestige buildings that go into play. These prestige buildings come as a blueprint. They require certain resources in order to be built, and it's always a wide mix of resources, and they require at least one of the squares of the grid of Gloomhaven that they cover to be of a certain terrain type. That blueprint will then go into play. 
You're looking to connect the required resources to the prestige as soon as that happens, no one needs to do any other actions. It will just fill up with those resources. Once your prestige building is completely for the resources it requires, it is built and it flips over and it becomes a worker placement area which is available to all the players in the game. It's gonna score the people who have supplied the goods to it all the way through, points as they go, and once you've built six prestige buildings, that is going to be the end of the game. Sean, founders of Gloomhaven. I was trying to not to take too long describing it there because even in person, it is difficult to describe. Trying to get these people to understand the whole spatial aspect and the cascading and the having to connect. And we certainly haven't gone into details of how you connect and there's a lot of complications there. Ooh, founders of Gloomhaven. Right, Ronan, while before your rant motor has, has wound completely down, yes, uh, I'm going to pass the look of the game for now, and I'm going to start on the rule book. Would you like to take us through that rule book? Well, now, I'm not going to rant about this. What? It's Now, I've got a little list of barriers to entry for fans of Gloomhaven, and the rule book is on there. It is one of the three points that I want to bring up, because... As with the Gloomhaven rulebook, it's cut a little bit of a stream of consciousness. And it's written like he's telling you about the game rather than teaching you the game. And it's written in paragraphs rather than easy to find reference points. So it's a unique style and it's definitely not the best style. The thing for me is that both in Gloomhaven and Founders of Gloomhaven, I kind of understand him when he writes these rulebooks. And it's not the absolute nightmare to learn that it is for some other people. Where I do get really frustrated is trying to go back to check a rule, because that's almost impossible. You almost learn in this game like a narrative and trying to jump around the narrative to find out where he's mentioned this or where he mentioned that or where he's put the certain um, exceptions in or where the sentence that contains a key rule is the fifth sentence in a six-sentence paragraph. It's not highlighted anyway. It's not a good rule book. It needs editing. He needs to get help with these rule books because they are parts of the barriers to entry. But it wasn't the worst rule book to me. I see all the all the swearing texts that I got while you were learning this. I thought I thought for sure you were going to go around. That's because I, I had to do the the pit stop video, and I ended up. I looked back. I did a seventeen minute pit stop, which isn't really a pit stop, is it? <laughs> That's just the rules explanation. <laughs> and I ended up, because I was trying to clarify things going over and over, half that frustration is because there are so many exceptions to the rules and so many fiddly things you have to be aware of. And in fact, in the pit stop, I build illegally at least twice without realising it. And that's after studying the rulebook and playing the game a couple of times. So it's, it's, he hasn't made it easier. He, he, he has put up walls around this game yeah, which is going to make the first experience frustrating for people. I think that's the buzzword for for my review on this is fiddly. I think fiddly fits into this game nicely for me. I think you've got this board and it's it's quite a dull board as it begins, and then becomes quite cluttered and messy, and the fiddly rules with the fiddly components and the fiddly board once it's all laid out. I think they just to hamper the immersion into the game and make wrong moves very easy to do. Yeah, and, and one thing just to throw in there, the iconography's tiny. Yes. 
and um, when you're building things, they're going to be in all different orientations, and the information is only ever in one orientation. Yeah. So you end up with a board with with information going to all four cardinal points. Yeah. Which we're talking about Welcome Centerville or any other game we mentioned all the time that I like to be able to look at a board and grok it and straight line it and go okay I can see what's going on very very hard to do in Founders of Gloomhaven another barrier for entry because you're not going to play well it's going to take a very certain type of of brain and mind and player to be able to play this well on your first five plays even Maybe because the, more, it's yeah. hard it's hard to see the ball and it's hard to go you know even when you've got access to resources what happens is you stick a disc on everything you build and you say oh, I built this this is mine I own it great and that never changes and that at least is good but let's say that Natalie had built a stall and had a resource if I pay to get in there my disc goes directly under her disc and it's just not easy to see and now I might remember I'm there, but other people might not. And quite often, in fact, in every game I've played, people have built in not realising that someone's jumped under them and then they're planning to build a Tier 3 building, forgetting that someone's under there and that they are already one or two rounds ahead of them in building that building. Yeah. And then it gets nicked off them and then they get frustrated. So I, I just... In in terms of that feeling, I did want to go. Just going back to the other two barriers to entry, quick, Sean. One, one second, one second before no, go you go on. Go on, yeah, go on. Um, I actually don't. I think it's actually a fair point to to make that. I think if you've got any eyesight problems, I don't know if you can play this game because, as you said, the iconography is is really small, obscuring of the discs and the discs being quite small, and and then that sort of jumble of of information really. That's on that board. I think if you've got any eyesight problems at all, you're going to struggle. Again, just I don't think accessibility to the game has been considered. No, it's he's like clearly super clever. Yeah, he's so, clearly like really a special mind, and we need to encourage him to carry on designing games and coming up with his ideas because this is a, a, a unique game, and that's not often we can he say needs that. A partner, but he, I feel. yeah. It's kind of like the Martin Wallace of a couple of years ago, right? Where we were saying, dude, get out of publishing. You're no good at it. Stick with designing. This guy is quite good at publishing. He is good at publishing. (laughs) He's not good at user interface. He needs a sort of UI manager. And he needs a rule book editor. And he needs someone who's able to say, I get the idea of this game, but we need to mitigate some of these things. Yeah, streamline it, it, yeah. yeah. No, it's not even streamline, just make it more playable. So, yeah, it's basically it's the Arkham Horror to Eldritch Horror. You've taken a really fiddly, clunky game with loads of things going on, and you've just said, right, here you go, here's a playable version of that. But that was a gameplay change. I'd like to see this with the interface changed, with different ways of, di- of showing ownership, with a more intuitive way of showing how buildings get built. Hmm. And then I'd like to play it because those hurdles are so you're so tiring to jump over and you're constantly jumping over them that you're a bit tired when you get to the actual, is this actually fun or not? The, the other thing that puts off when you first start playing it is the scoring is completely unintuitive because you're paying to access people's goods. That doesn't give you any victory points the VP for those resources will still go to the person who owns the resource 
And you will never, like if Sean's race powers to own wood, I will never own wood. And whenever I need to use wood, Sean will score points of it and it will have cost me money. It's a highly competitive game that feels like, hold on, I'm spending my money so that you can score points. There's a, a blog on BGG, a guy called Dustin, and he talks about games. I think it's all the colours of gaming or thematic colours of gaming or something like that. And he was saying that they played this game for three hours and no one had built a tier two building because they refused to pay money for someone else to score points. And you can kind of understand that. And he says, like, well, no one could do it. Yeah, because you have to pay into someone else. They don't get the money and then build and they get points from what you've done. But you have to set yourself up in a position where your gain is at a certain level before you move into that. And that's it's, it's not just that your gain is, is more. You're trying to get yourself further and further apart. So your gain is like twice what their gain is or but, three but times. You can't do is. that into a tier two building. It's very difficult. Usually it's a point to one person, a point to another person, and you've done all the work. What you have to do then is plan what you're going to do with that tier two building, yeah, how yeah. you're going to build a tier well, that's three That's what I mean, building. yeah, your game, like, as the game progresses. Long term, so, yeah, yeah. which is impossible in your first game. No, yeah, for, I sure, idea, for sure. No surprise to me at all that there are people playing one game and going, I'm never playing that game again. It was miserable. Because you have to plan, not only do you have to plan to tier three, and this is kind of the last barrier to entry I was going to say, in order to, to, to do this game well, you have to plan for the prestige buildings. And you have to know, because they're limited to what terrains they can be on, what ones are in the game, what resources they require, and therefore, what combination of tier 1, tier 2, and tier 3 resources I am building with access from them to the correct terrain type to be able to build the prestige buildings, which will ultimately score me the lots of points that all that effort has taken where I've been drip-feeding other people points all along. I mean, it's kind of genius, but how are you going to know that going into the game? And how are you going to learn those prestige buildings? And the game takes up a whole load of space and they end up getting put these blueprints get all over the place. And the, what's the worker placement power on that one? And what's it on that one? And what are you connected to? And how have you got there? And where's your gate? And... Uh, uh, like the gates and the bridges look thematic but it's quite hard to tell sometimes who's a who's that is absolutely 100% agreed but now I played this very confused at times during the game all the things you said the scoring wasn't intuitive the, the just the whole makeup of the game is difficult to get to get your head around oh, but, oh, sorry but, I do love the scoring system but carry on yeah no, no but, but the flip side for me was that the scoring system, yeah, not intuitive, but massively interactive. Everything in this game is so interactive. You are leeching off people, working with people, working around people. Everything you do matters to everyone. So that means every turn that somebody takes, maybe right at the beginning when you're all split off into your... But once you start joining up, every turn is of interest to you because you... you You've got your fingers in so many pies and you're watching how other players are linking up and what other players are scoring off that player, the two's turn is, is scoring. So that is what kept me sort of from not dismissing this game. It is a positive. I'm being too negative about this game, but the frustration is, mate, that what you then need to be able to do is 
All right, Sean is doing that to do that, and he's going to build weapons there. My job then is to know what resources I need to have near weapons so that I can exploit the fact that weapons are available in that space or going to be available in that space. That's yeah. where the good play comes in. Where you go, all yeah, oh, right, sure. okay, he's building weapons, so I know there's two prestige builders that want weapons and they also want uh, cogs or whatever. So therefore, oh yeah, look, I mean, I keep, so I'll build my cogs over in that direction and then we can sort of vote together to get the right prestige building there. And then we're both going to score off that. Or you could go the different way and be quite negative to that person if that if you if you want if to you've got no chance because you'll off. know like what you've done earlier would have would have would have decided whether you can exploit the fat weapons are there or not. Yeah, yeah. And then you get into where the voting is really important. And first game or two, it kind of feels throwaway, and you go, I don't care what, what prestige building. I don't have a clue, mate. That is the game. The game is the voting. What prestige buildings are available and where they're placed is where the points are going to be scored, the big points. It's kind of crazy. It's such a niche product, which I'm sure he had in development before he became a mainstream publisher. He had a massive yeah, spotlight said, shining on that. this game. He said that at the time. Yeah, yeah, it's he's obviously he's put the Gloomhaven sort of theme onto it because Gloomhaven's done so well, and it's a very clever marketing strategy to add that name. Even though he's gone to great lengths to say that this isn't Gloomhaven, it's nothing to do. It's just set in the world, but it's a very clever thing to do. And he's obviously had this in the back of his head, and he's been. I'd say it is fully realised, but almost too well realised, and it just needs scaling back a little bit. I think he may have done himself more damage than good by putting Gloomhaven on there because it would have got a lot of exposure and there's no way this game was ever going to have mass appeal and I don't think it was designed to and his follow-up with the Gloomhaven name on even if it was nothing to do with dungeon crawling and a campaign and card management and all the rest of it I think had to have more mass appeal than this because now people the next time he releases a game are going to be like mm. if he calls it you know I don't know Kings of Gloomhaven or whatever. People, oh, I don't know, because Founders was... But Founders is is really good for what it is. But it's not for the 100,000 people that have bought Gloomhaven. It's a very, very, very clever game. But almost too clever. Yeah, well, for us anyway. I do yeah, have to certainly. have one last moan before you go into your sum up. Go on, mate. If you play with fewer than four players, you have neutral resources. And I said that it, it's hard to motivate yourself to build initially and spend all your money when you score a point and, and another person scores a point. When you have neutral resources, it's minus one point. So actually, if you've got to build something with a neutral resource, <laughs> you end up with zero points for your effort sometimes. And that yeah. can go into tier two. You build a tier two building and you're getting zero VP. And you're like, why? But if you don't build them... We can't build the tier threes and we can never complete the prestige. So therefore, you're building just to finish the game when there are fewer than four players in the game. The neutral resources rule is awful. Never mind niche, bad to entry, bit hard to grok, bad. That's the one thing that's just bad. Anyway, that was my little rant. I've been negative all through, Sean, but I kind of hope I haven't come across too negative. What are your thoughts? So to sum up on founders of Gloomhaven 
My personal arc in this game went from confusion to enlightenment to confusion to enlightenment, and I, I seem to be bouncing back and forth all the time. I don't think it's a particularly thematic game, but what it is, it's a clever game. It, it can maybe from the cluttered mind of a genius. Is it too clever? Yeah, sometimes. Do I want to explore it? Yes, because of what I said about the interaction. I find every turn to be fascinating. But very rarely is there an actual physical problem with the game. And I think in this game you do have it. I think it's very difficult to see, to follow the chains back, to see who's interacted with what, to see how they interact or who scores the points for each every point scoring. You're going to make so many mistakes in this game that are going to change the way the game ends up. So it's it's a tough one to get to the table, Ronan. It's a, such a hard game to get to the table. I would like to get it to the table. I'd like to get it a few more times to try and get my head around it. But I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to. And even if I'm trying to do it, I'm worried that I'm not going to find the audience to do it with me. Yeah, I'll never get the most out of it. Never. It's a spatial puzzle, slow burner. You have to help each other out, you think, but you're not really. You must plan, but it's incredibly hard to plan. It's not really designed for human minds. I don't know what mind is designed for, but not really. Not 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 the 98% of the population it isn't anyway. But I'll tell you what it is. It's going to be fantastic for certain playgroups. It's going to be a favourite because it's going to reward patience. It's going to, it's almost like an old-fashioned game where they were being released 20 a year and you got it and you played it and you played it and you played it till everyone knew it and everyone knew what the name of the prestige buildings were and everyone knew that when you build a certain resource you might be going up a certain chain. When you get to that level with it, I think it could be absolutely magnificent. I just think that an awful lot of game groups aren't going to get there so it's a real real mixed bag fans of gloomhaven but there you go that's our review of it it may sound like it's incredible to you it may sound like the worst game in the world it can be either of those extremes i think to different people cool so we're going to finish off with Altiplano. And this comes from Rainer Stockhausen, who is the designer from Orléans, and this is very much the successor to Orléans. It's from DLP Games, and Renegade have also picked it up. It is a bag-building game, and it's set in the South American highlands of the Andes, where essentially the altitude makes it really tough to survive and to thrive. The people of the, the local area have got to find food, produce it, and sell it to survive. On the table, you've got seven location tiles. There's no board in this game. You have a farm, a mine, a forest, a harbour, a road, a village, and a market. And these things pretty much do what they say. Like, the forest is obviously going to produce wood, and the harbour, fish, the mountains, and the mine areas, ore, etc., players are also going to have a player board with action spaces that are directly linked to the seven locations they're also going to have a warehouse the bag for the aforementioned uh, bag building and they're also going to have a container which wasn't present in Orléans and it changes the way you play slightly as in when you use your tokens you're going to go into this little container rather than back into the bag so you cycle through all of your 
tokens that you've got in there. So on a turn, you're going to move your meeple to the area that you wish to activate on the locations. And then you're going to perform an action there. Now the actions are gathering goods, combining goods for other commodities. You can obtain add-ons to your tableau, like personal actions. You can take and fulfill orders. You can add produce to your warehouse and you can add wagons and the wagons allow you more movement around. This is all done by assigning the tiles that you draw from your bag, like all ill. Points in the game are going to be given for fulfilling those contracts I mentioned. Building up your warehouse, you build them up in, in lines and you, when you complete a line you're going to score for it. You also have houses that you can obtain and they give you end of game scoring and certain goods are going to score. Now, Ronan, I think it's no shock or surprise that I was a huge fan of Orleon, and I was very excited about this one. Do you listen to Dukes of Dice? I have them on my download list. I don't think I've listened to them yet. they got a thing where Baseball Highlights 2045 is definitely Alex's favourite game. I know Sean doesn't like it quite as much as he likes it as well. And every episode... They talk about baseball highlights. They go, baseball highlights 2045. First mention for the episode. Second mention, third mention, fourth mention. <laughs> Is that me mentioning? Oh, come on, I had to mention Orleon on this one. Yeah, well, why choose this one to review? So you can mention Orleon. Yeah. <laughs> I, I presume that as soon as we get to our first treasure hunt, you're going to be picking the expansion out for this. <laughs> Just so you can mention Orleon. Probably. 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 Right. Alter Plano, Sean. Yeah. It didn't lead me down a garden path. Because that would be too short and open. It led me down a mountain path, which was quickly down to the bottom of a canyon with steep, steep walls. Are you giving only, the gold away already? Only one direction to go in and didn't allow me to deviate or see any of the marvellous scenery that was around me. And then I soon discovered that all my other players were going down a separate, different canyon path where they couldn't see the rest of the game. And then I was like, hold on. There are ways to jump from path to path here. I can buy a boat or I can pay for one of these extensions. And miraculously, my path will change into a separate yet very similar canyon path leading me down a single path with no chance to change or deviate from course. Right, shall we start to talk about the individual parts of that? Right, <laughs> so let's start on let's start on the first path. The game kind of sets up your first path for you, doesn't it? It kind of tells you, kind of? right, the this is what you're quite good at, and these are the resources that you can get at, and this is the way we are channeling you. Now, you're 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 a fisherman. You start in the harbour. The things that you have will allow you to make a certain thing and it's punishing for you to attempt to move off that harbour. Yes. Now, there are ways, <laughs> as Ronan alluded to, of picking up a tile, much like Orleon. Here you go. Extension, six. Yeah. Is that six, seven? Okay. <laughs> Where you can have your own personal action space and there are very similar tiles to that that you can bring into a tableau that allow you to get access to some of the other commodities in the game but it's more luck than judgment isn't it like you may get it's more access to, me, to the alpacas more to me why would you 
that that's that I'm not incentivized. In order to, to change up what I'm doing, I don't, tell me if you think I'm wrong. The only reason I actually do this is that there are those contracts available mm-hmm. which say you have one of these, one of these, one of those. And if I want to do contracts, I then may want access to a variety of resources. All right. But... Contracts will score you the most points, generally, unless you build up your, your warehouse. Will they? But... Or will warehousing the same thing again and again and again and buying the house for that thing. I feel like this is something that you've explored. Would you like to talk us through it? So, with the warehouse, you fill, you put a good in there, you fill up a row, it scores you a certain number of points, but the goods in the warehouse are still going to score a certain number of points. So let's say, for example, you got the, uh, you're in an alpaca farm. So, at your alpaca farm, you use alpacas and you can make food and you can make cloth. And then... Uh, a wool rather and then from the wool you can make cloth which is quite high value there's not apart from going to the roads you because you go to the road and you can span the number of discs you can put down at once there's not too many reasons to diversify too far away from that you might want some stone wherever to build a house but so what you can just do is just churn just churn and churn and churn and churn and churn and make loads of wool and make loads of cloth right and just have that in your system then warehouse it and then make the same thing. And warehouse, so you're just adding to your deck and removing the same thing and warehousing that good. So you just have row upon row upon row of wool or cloth. Then there are houses available which you can build, which makes every single one of those tokens plus one. Now I made 15 cloth and they're all worth three or four points each. And then I make them worth whatever is four or five points each. That is the best way to score points. It completely incentivizes a mono economy. Now, all right, not completely. Don't shout at me. You need a bit of food to move around here and there. You need to go on the road a bit. You might want to jump in and grab the odd contract that suits you. It's not a lot. And there's a straight jacket put on making movement more difficult, which to me didn't add any fun to the game. And then there's set paths whereby each of the basic resources is not very flexible. In in Orleon, and we have to talk about it, if I have a, a certain type, like I've got a monk or I've got a knight or whatever it might be, there are a few options or a few different combinations I can use to, to use those. I, I, I can put them in, oh, this time I'll use it to do that, or this time I'll use it in conjunction with that one to do that. Here... No, mostly I use fish at the harbour to get stone, whatever that is. Or by my extension, or I use my alpaca and a food to get a wall. And that, that's what I get. There's yeah, no so flexibility. I think, yeah, I think you've probably more intelligently gone into your games of this and, and devised that. I, I, I wasn't intelligent enough to do it, so I tried to diversify. That's what I tend to do. I feel like it's an economy game, so I try to build up my economy by bringing as much into into me as possible. So I tried to diversify, and I felt it was a more enjoyable game by doing that, but I can see what you're saying. That Why would you, if you're playing to win, and that's the way to win, then why would you? I, as I said, I wasn't intelligent enough to try that. Well, it's not intelligence. It's not necessarily. It's that maybe you just didn't want to because it was boring, and it was boring. I had more fun <laughs> when I went around the place and got different stuff, and I had more fun when I was looking for extensions, and I was like, oh, right, you know, I've had enough of making fish. I'm going to grab an extension, and I'm going to start making ore and see what I can do with that. In the end, it didn't make any difference to me. Really, I, I could make fish for a quarter of the game, fill up some levels of the warehouse, then move on uh, and make ore and, and convert it 
and make jewelry or whatever and then fill up warehouse from there. That's still scoring me points. But I'm still doing one thing for for a series of turns. There's no excitement, there's no interest, there's no there's nothing driving me. It's just a churn. Even if I want to change direction, it's much better to warehouse everything as I go, have a little set of tokens, and then, all right, I'll change my mind down, I'll go and do that. Because then it's a small set of tokens that's going to go through very quickly, and I can change what I'm doing very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I can see a lot of that. I think during during the game, I, I felt like there were points where I was having a little bit of fun just playing the game but not not really thinking of the end game but one thing i really didn't enjoy even just within the game itself was the lack of interaction yeah another mention of orleon in orleon you've got that the map where you're you're moving around and you're, you're looking to get to things before each other and you're looking to gain gather the resources before each other and you can block each other off because only one of you can go in and you've also you, the the track at the bottom you're rewarded for getting to things first and on top of that can empty out the resources and before people can get at it so there are there you, is can, those you int- can empty resources now to play no but it's quite end game yeah and it doesn't make too much difference to you you might get stuck with a contract you can't fulfill because there's a lot yeah. of ways to mitigate and get out you, you can buy a boat to get a token which can start an economy in a certain direction you can buy an extension to start mm. you know I just didn't feel like it had any interaction at all. Really. No, and in fact, playing it, you played Orleon way more than I have. I it made me question Orleon because I remembered liking Orleon, and then I played Alta Plano and went, "Did I like Orleon, or was it like because <laughs> I had a really good like a good mate of mine? I don't play games with very often. Taught me, and Rachel was there. And we had a lovely time, and I thought maybe it was just a good time. So uh, we played it together again, didn't we? After we played yeah, Alta Plano, did. yes, yeah. And I was like, no. This game's really good. <laughs> it's a much, yeah, wow. Give him the gold away. It's a much stronger game in my life. It's really good. And do you know what? I think Alta Plano gets like knocked down one not much out of ten for making me doubt all the on. <laughs> it's like, how dare you? How dare you dare What are you playing at? You're making me think the original game was like, the original game is strong, man. What have you done here? I, I'd sure just sum up because we just... Yeah, go on, yeah, go on, sum up, sum up. Alta Plano is not terrible. It is dull, though. And uh, when you start getting your economy and your engine churning, there's a, you know, oh, yeah, okay, cool, that's cool. I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this. But you almost have complete control over it. And people can't really mess with you much. And then you can decide how dull you want to be from there. And the duller you are, the more points you're going to score. The thing is, it doesn't exist in isolation. Orleon exists and as the sequel to Orleon it just feels like a step backwards and it doesn't really matter what role you get at the beginning it just means that you're going to be concentrating on a slightly different churn system you're going to be walking down a different path through canyons where you can't see anything around you and if you choose to shift midway through that doesn't really make too much difference either because you'll just get your economy purring again and you're getting tokens and you put them in your warehouse and that's that it is just a pointless game. It doesn't add anything to the lexicon of games that Orleon doesn't already. So it's okay. It's a bit dull. Yeah, it's um, actually I touched on some of that in my summit runner now. Yeah, Alta Planet, it's okay. But it's not as tight, gritty, interactive as Orleon. I think 
you're very much on rails in this game. You start off on rails, and then yeah, you might you might hit a set of points where you can cross rails and go onto a new tr- set of tracks. Don't mention but- cross rail; that's too controversial. After, that, <laughs> after the announcement recently, <laughs> but again, you're on you're on rails again. There are some nice touches. I mentioned the actual putting your your pieces out of the bag into a container so you cycle through everything so the bag you have to be more careful about your bag building but i think that was the only thing i would add i think the rest of it felt like the ideas that didn't quite make orleon and they thought you know what it's a worse game for these and they just kind of gathered those up and made Alteplano. it's fine but orleon exists it's there i think it's a far superior game and it, they're too similar to make you choose Alteplano above it. And that was our review of Alteplano. And we will catch you after this brief interlude for our outro. Sean, I'm going to subtitle this episode Slim Pickings. <laughs> I, I can't disagree with you. Yeah, it's... We are thinking about our top threes, weren't we? And I was looking at it thinking, you know what? It's not a great haul. There's some interesting games, but yeah, not not the best bunch we've ever done. There were two that were nowhere near. There were two that I think could make a top three of, of some, certain episodes. So I think my top two I'm quite happy with. And then the middle two both had issues. So overall, it's not the best top three, but I think my top two I'm quite happy with. I think those are decent games and I would recommend them. Yeah, okay, so shall I lead off with my number three? Yeah, why not? My number three is Founders of Gloomhaven. It could be brilliant in the right hands, in the right group, but I haven't quite got my head around it yet, but I can see the brilliance somewhere amongst the madness. My number three is Founders of Gloomhaven. Oh. I told you before we start recording this segment, I think we've got the same top three. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we've got the same top two. It's what order they're going to be in. And people can probably guess if they've been paying attention, all seven of them. Fans of Gloomhaven, the reason that I'm saying it's not the best top three is because some people are going to hate it. Some few people are going to absolutely adore it. And a lot of people are going to dismiss it after an attempt at a play. And certainly with the rule book being, a, being difficult. I could see what he was going for he just didn't quite turn that into the user experience that i think we hoped for so my number three founders of the gloomhaven okay so my number two is sailing toward osiris lovely production does what it sets out to do i think in that it's a very much a gateway game is teaching uh, new mechanisms to players who maybe not the most experienced but still for those first four or five games, for sure, an interesting and clever and enjoyable game to me. For my number two, I can only echo my learned friend. Are you choosing not to play now? <laughs> you dumbass. <laughs> you said everything I wanted to say about saying towards Osiris. Really nice production. I pr- actually, maybe I'm less tolerant of it than you are in terms of actual plays. Like, I'm, I'll happily, happily play it to an end with someone who's getting in and I'll happily teach it and I'll be happy to play it in those circumstances with a bunch of gamers I can't see myself ever choosing it but it is an absolutely solid game a solid production well then that means I think 
everyone knows because it was certainly the most glowing review we gave. My number one was Cartago Merchants and Guilds. It was just way more than I thought it was going to be. It kind of surprised me at how good it was and thoroughly enjoyed the choices that I had to make and then that just that frustration of not being able to do everything I wanted to do. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cathargo is my number one as well, which makes our one, two, three of the episode really easy to work out. We don't have to do our maths for that, do we? <laughs> this could have made the top three in any episode. So uh, whatever we just said, uh, this would have been a contender, and this is the most, the greatest big over the bones ever. I think it's a really good game. It's a game that's gone into my recently culled down collection. It's on my to keep shelf, and there's not that many left on there. Let me tell you, which suggests to me that it's very strong. I can see myself coming back to it. It's it's cool to teach. It's a game that d- dawns on people as they play it. I've been asked for repeated plays of it. Uh, it's going to stick around, and I. I think, I hope that Cathago Merchant of Guilds will be sort of a sleeper hit because I kind of crawled out of Essen last year. It's been picked up by Capstone Games. More people are talking about it. And I hope it continues to build this momentum because it is a strong game. And it does deserve a wider audience, Sean. Let's just touch on your game culling. You got rid of some some, some bad boys in that that I never thought I'd see you part with. Kemet went out the door. Um, Kemet or Cyclades had to be Cyclades. Oh, so is that the way it went? So you took picked two or three similar games, and you had to you picked the favourite of them. No, no, no. I just I looked at games that so I've I've got rid of 120 or 130 games or something like that. I would never choose to play Kemet ahead of Cyclades. And I know they're not exactly the same game. Kemet is much more of a Euro and a planner and a combo. But I just looked at games and went, would I choose to play that ahead of the other games I have in that area? Like, let me think what else I've kept that's vaguely simple. There's probably not that many. Clash of Cultures I kept. I'd say I was in that area. That's been a long-time favourite of yours, though. Yeah, we've still got Chaos in the Old World, which I really like, but Rachel absolutely adores. Um, this could be an episode couldn't it what what stuff I kept in <laughs> certain genres I can't see the whole I kept War of the Ring you know and I know they're not exactly the same game but when you're coming to that sort of length of game time with that, that player count and you're looking for fighting over a map I'm just I'm not going to choose it I had to keep tight to the Underdark Eleanor loves it that's got to be enough in that genre right yeah I mean look, mate, some of those that went out that, were, that are top 100 games but just not getting played and I, I kept certain things that maybe I wouldn't rate as highly because they get played in certain circumstances or one of the family loves them or whatever it might be I don't know, I don't know. like I was going to give you a spoiler for a review we're going to do oh I say anything <laughs> anyway the house is, was getting overrun the thing is I think we said it before and we're in the incredibly fortunate position that the pit stops have taken off and it's getting more and more interest. We're getting more subscribers, more views, more publishers are interested. And especially coming up to Essen, the publishers are really interested in us doing pit stops. So they've started already, Essen Preview Games. When Ryan goes and loopy, absolutely loopy. Every year he goes, we can't do that many again. And then he doubles it. I know, but it's fine. It's fine. I've got a plan this time You've around. You've also made a rod for my back. Because obviously, obviously, for your back. Obviously, Natalie's looking at you getting rid of all your games. What do you think she's saying to me? Why can't you do that? Mate, why can't you do it? In fairness, Shut you've got a lot of games you never play. It's supposed to be on my side. 
Yeah, he's got a garage that his car doesn't go in. It's just full of games that he never plays. What? What? I went out there the other day. I was looking for a specific game that we were going to play. Wendake. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. That will be coming soon. Coming in episode 115, a quick review, I believe. And I went out there and found three or four games that I'd forgotten I'd bought at the UKGE. What were they? They were... what were they? They were the Gilded Compass or something, one of them was called. Curse. That's got a famous designer, isn't it? Someone... Yeah, he's, I've been looking at it and thinking it's not really got a lot of buzz, but it sounds interesting. A Curse of the Black Dice, we we uh, treasure hunted it a long time ago. and it I was trapped that a long time you ago. You trapped that bad boy. But I thought, again, like Loot Island, I thought I found it really cheap in the bring and buy. So I, thought I picked it up and there was something else I, I grabbed as well while I was there and it was quite embarrassing you go out there and I was like I didn't actually know I had that <laughs> okay uh, you do need to get rid of some games that's what I'm saying I'm talking from what the moral high point yeah there. yeah yeah okay uh, anyway enough of what just talking rubbish our next episode that we've planned and as you well know who knows if this is going to happen or not but hopefully in episode 115 coming relatively <laughs> shortly we're going to be joined by Puria and we're going to do we hope, nine quick reviews in the first half. And in the second half, we're going to be looking at the two brasses, them being uh, Lancashire and Birmingham. Uh, we've got different amounts of history with the original, with, with Brass Lancashire. And then, so we're going to discuss that. We're going to discuss, obviously, I mean, what, what do we need to say? The new version looks amazing but but any changes and then more specifically about brass birmingham with regards to the changes they've made there the good the bad was it necessary which one are we going to keep are we going to keep both we're going to keep none of them because all three of us have backed it and all three of us have been playing both uh, versions so we're going to pick those apart for a little while uh, and nine quick reviews and we hope that'll be a decent episode and it'll be lovely to have puria back and that's about it, Sean. Yeah, and then hopefully we'll be kicking into Essen Madness. We might have a special guest or two in our Essen previews, but yeah. we're not going to talk about that just yet because we haven't recorded them. So we won't talk about it until we've actually done it. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to be doing Treasure Hunts from the beginning of October onwards. And we know that people enjoy those. And as I said, pit stops have already started for Essen releases. So um, head to YouTube and subscribe and you might get some heads up on some games coming out in October. Very good. Right, shall we let these good people go? I think we should. As always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go to the Dice Tower and the Network for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, we're on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes and Spotify. We're on social media. We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter handle at Gamebit Podcast, and we're also on Instagram. Ways to contact us are through our email address. We are the Gamepit Podcast at gmail.com. And a great place to contact us is on our Board Game Geek Guild. Pop along there and we'll be happy to chat with you then. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron. Diva Bubble. Oh.